You're listening to China Takes Over the World. This is Ying Ma. We are delighted to welcome Gordon Chang, a prolific commentator on China and Asia issues. He is a contributor to Forbes.com and author of Nuclear Showdown: North Korea Takes on the World, as well as of the coming collapse of China. Gordon, thank you very much for joining us today. Well, thank you so much for asking. President Obama is going to visit Asia later this month. What key messages do you think he will or should convey to the countries of Malaysia, the Philippines, South Korea, and Japan? The most important thing he should do is convey America's willingness and determination to defend its allies and friends in Asia. These countries are being threatened by a more provocative Beijing, and clearly, you know, attempts to establish cooperative relationships with the Chinese during his first term generally failed. I think what happened is essentially the Chinese felt that they could push the United States around. They became especially belligerent, and that's why we have the pivot. And that's why we have a visit to Asia, which does not include China, but which does include America's friends in the region. Well, you've written that、uh, countries in Asia, particularly U.S. allies, see the Obama administration's policy toward China as weak and feckless. Could you elaborate on that? I think it was very important that Philippine President Aquino in February compared the West policies towards China to those that they had with regard to the Third Reich in 1938. He used the word Sudetenland, and then clearly that is a signal that he felt that American policies. We're really appeasing China, and they were not succeeding, especially because China's behavior towards the Philippines has really been extremely belligerent, seizing Scarborough Shoal in the middle of 2012, and now putting a lot of pressure on Second Thomas Shoal. And in fact, in the beginning of March, the Chinese Foreign Ministry bragged about aggressive acts against the Philippines. So clearly, there is concern in Asia, and that's why I think President Obama has to go to the Philippines, which he is doing later this month, to show America's support for the Philippines. And, and this is going to be a long-term effort on the part of the United States because it's going to take more than just one trip to do this. Well, what actions should the Obama administration have taken?、Um, what can the U.S. do short of going to war with China over a bunch of rocks or sandbars in Asia's bodies of water? The most important thing to do is to show to Beijing that aggression will not work. Got to remember that in the beginning part of 2012, the Chinese were pressuring Scarborough Shoal, and the United States actually brokered an agreement between Beijing and Manila for both sides to remove their vessels from the shoal. Well, the Chinese reneged on that. The right, Philippines withdrew、right. their vessels. The Chinese didn't, and the United States didn't do anything about it. And that showed the Chinese that aggression works. Well,、so、what they, could the what, what could the United States have done at the time, or what should it have done at the time? It should have made it very clear that the United States would use all means at its disposal to make sure that Chinese vessels left Scarborough Shoal. And this should have not just come from lower-level officials. This should have come from the president himself. Um, because the, you don't have to go to war with the Chinese over barren rocks and shoals or anything, but you do have to show them that warlike policies on the part of Beijing will not work. Unfortunately, we've showed them the opposite, and that's why there is so much in the way of problems in the region. And it's not just the Philippines. We heard Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe at Davos in February talk about how it's like 1914. This is very serious talk from leaders in the region, and it indicates that all is not well. 
Right, right. Um, and as you mentioned earlier, the Obama administration announced a pivot to Asia when Hillary Clinton was still Secretary of State. How do you think the pivot is going thus far? And do you think it's been more talk than action? Well, the pivot actually is real because there has been substantial planning in the Pentagon to redeploy American forces to Asia. Also, there is the Trans-Pacific Partnership, and negotiations should be going better. The United States should be paying more attention to it. But nonetheless, that's a very, very important part of the pivot. This is going to happen whether we like it or not, largely because the Chinese are going to drive it, as they've driven it up to now. Got to remember that the Obama administration came to office trying to establish especially cooperative relations with the Chinese. They took that not as a signal of cooperation, but as a sign of weakness. They pressed harder, and therefore we had the pivot in November of 2011. The Chinese are driving this, so there will be a pivot because the Chinese are taking actions that inevitably result in other countries, including the United States and its allies and friends, working more closely together. We are speaking with Gordon Chang of Forbes.com. He's also the author of Nuclear Showdown and the Coming Collapse of China. You've noted that the idea that China will have a peaceful rise is rather bogus. Um, I think you've noted that in in both your commentary and your writing. Um, At this point, do you think the U.S. should then contain China's rise? Well, why shouldn't we contain it? Um, You know, people are very afraid to use that word. But we see China, which is territorially aggressive in an arc of nations from India in the south to South Korea in the north. The Chinese are talking about very expansive territorial claims, and they've been using very aggressive tactics. So, yes, we should try to contain it, because if we don't try to contain it, the Chinese are going to think that they can actually take territory, or actually I should say more territory from its neighbors. And so, therefore, I don't think we have a choice. And, you know, the part of the problem is, you know, we've seen this dynamic so many times in history where hardline states um, sense weakness on the part of the Western democracies, and then they push too far. And unfortunately, there always are terrible events that follow that. I hope that we can avoid that dynamic this time, but I'm afraid that we won't. Well, but isn't there a bit of... um, the, the China's concerns about the islands in the South China Sea exceeds the U.S. concern, or at, at least it appears that it, ex, it exceeds the U.S. concerns, right? I mean, if China is willing to use force, but the U.S. isn't is willing to threaten to counter, but isn't willing to go through with it, isn't it actually worse? Well, the United States needs to do something. I mean, we can prevent this without use of force. But unfortunately, we have to show resolve and will, and we haven't been willing to do that. How, how would we show resolve and will? I, I think that it, it's something that starts with the president. He has to speak very clearly to the Chinese in public as well as in private, because if we're not willing to speak to the Chinese, they'll think we're afraid of them. If they think we're afraid of them, they will act accordingly. And bad things happen when your adversary does not respect you. And that really has been the dynamic up to now. Remember, the Chinese took Scarborough, and they, they started to pressure um, Second Thomas Shoal in the Senkakus. So we can see that from their point of view, they believe that aggression does work. And we have taught them that lesson. Well, but if all that Obama does is talk tough, wouldn't he just look like 
uh, well, wouldn't he just look like a Barack Obama talking to Vladimir Putin, right? He's talking pretty tough there, too, but he's not exactly doing a whole lot. Sure, and, and he needs to do more. But, you know, in the initial stages of this dynamic, you don't need to do more. Now, if you continue to have fail- uh, failure, then obviously you're going to have to back up policies with clear shows of resolve. Uh, and that is something that, of course, we don't want to do. But nonetheless, I don't think we're going to have a choice. So, you know, at this point, I think that we not to, we not only need to talk to the Chinese, um, we need to deploy more assets into the region. We need to be making much more shows of working with our allies. And we need to be making shows of working less with the Chinese. Because every time, you know, the Chinese do something, we run to Beijing, and they see that this actually works from their point of view. But if they saw that we actually meant business, then I think that they would reassess their policies. Unfortunately, we haven't forced them to reassess policies. Okay, well, let's look at this for a minute from China's perspective. It's not the only government that claims about 90% of the South China Sea. It also is not the only government that has a dispute with Japan over the Daoyus and Kaku Islands in the East China Sea. Taiwan, a, a vibrant democracy, makes similar claims on those territories as well. Doesn't this show that China isn't being totally unreasonable in its territorial claims and that given that China, Taiwan is a much smaller and much less powerful actor than China, isn't it reasonable for China to be the more assertive one? Well, it's understandable why China is being more assertive, but nonetheless, its claims to 90 or 80 percent of the South China Sea um, are inconsistent with its treaty obligations, the obligations that it voluntarily undertook when it ratified the UN Law of the Sea Treaty. So clearly, um, whether you know we think that Taiwan, you know Taiwan has those same claims, but it doesn't pursue them, and it certainly doesn't use aggressive tactics like Beijing has been. So there's a real difference between the posture of Beijing and Taipei um, with regard to those claims. And as I mentioned, um, as China is a member of the UN Law of the Sea Treaty, nonetheless, those those claims that it has are just inconsistent with its treaty obligations. So I don't think Beijing gets a free pass here. Critics also cite China's maritime disputes with Japan as one indication of the threat that China poses to the region. And, and you've also um, mentioned that a bit earlier uh, earlier in our conversation. But China's relations with another U.S. ally, South Korea, has actually been quite warm in recent years. And South Korea shares many of China's grievances about Japan's periodic amnesia, or at least Japan's contradictory statements about its um, um, mistakes from World War II. So in that context, is China's behavior toward its neighbors really that menacing, or do some of its neighbors, particularly Japan, or at least the the right wing of of the Japanese um, uh, body politic, do, do, do they also bear some responsibility for fanning the flames of nationalism and anti-Chinese sentiments? I think what we see in Japan really is a reaction to China's aggressive uh, aggressiveness, because the Chinese had the Japanese where they wanted them. Um, and then, you know, we started to see in the uh, administration of uh, Jiang Zemin um, some pretty strong anti-Japanese policies, and that has triggered the reaction in Japan, which is regrettable, but I think it's understandable in the context of what we are seeing, because Japan has been threatened. We've got to remember that although the South Koreans have a better relationship with Beijing, they also are extremely upset with what China is doing with regard to the Aido um, research station, 
um, which is much closer to South Korea than it is to China, but China claims that it's within its exclusive economic zone. The South Koreans were very, very upset about the declaration of the East China Sea Air Defense Identification Zone last November, um, which includes South Korean airspace. And so, you know, this really is something which roils, you know, South Korea as well as Japan. Now, at this point, as I said, South Korea's relationship with Beijing is better than the Japanese relationship with uh, the Chinese. But I think that the problems with South Korea are at a much earlier stage. And given the the structural um, impediments, I, I think that relations with South Korea will get worse. There's two structural impediments. One of them is the competing territorial claims, and the other is Beijing's staunch support for North Korea. And we saw this in 2010 when Beijing stood besides North Korea when the North Koreans murdered 50 South Koreans in those two horrible incidents. This is something that is going to prevent a long-term reapproachment between Beijing and Seoul. Well, on that very happy note, we've been speaking with Gordon Chang, contributor to Forbes.com and author of Nuclear Showdown and the Coming Collapse of China. Gordon, thank you very much. Thank you. Well, it's great to talk to you. Uh, This is China Takes Over the World, and I am Ying Ma. Good morning and welcome to China Takes Over the World. I am Ying Ma. Our guest is retired Major General Paul Eaton, who served more than 30 years in the U.S. Army and is now a senior advisor at the National Security Network. From 2003 to 2004, he was the commanding general of the Coalition Military Assistance Training Team in Iraq. General, a big hello to you. How are you? Great to be back with you, Ying. Thank you very much for the invitation. (laughs) Well, great to have you on the show. We've spoken previously, though, not on uh, this particular show, not on RTHK's China Takes Over the World, but it's great to have you with us. Uh, The Obama administration announced sweeping budget cuts for the military in late February, and the Army, the U.S. Army, is slated to be reduced to its smallest size since World War II. Meanwhile, the Chinese government announced in early March that it would increase its defense budget by 12% or so this year. Do you think the cuts announced by the U.S. are wise, especially in light of the potential challenge that could come from countries like China? Well, uh, to make things uh, even more stark, uh, when you talk about uh, the $139 billion uh, budget that the Chinese are proposing with this 12% increase, uh, the Chinese actually get more defense bang from the buck than uh, most Western countries uh, because of the way they uh, because of the way they operate the way the industries operate so 12 percent increase uh, to uh, almost 140 is a substantial increase and we are in fact uh, drawing our force structure down a little bit uh, which is normal and prudent when you are not fighting an active war. Uh, the problem that I had with the last administration was that we did not increase the size of our ground forces to meet the foreign policy demands that uh, we put on them. 
So as a, as a soldier, as, uh, as a father of soldiers, I ask that uh, the administration match foreign policy appetite with the force structure that they maintain. And as long as we don't uh, trot off to start another war, uh, I don't have a problem with the Army going down to 440 or 450,000 uh, soldiers. Right. So, yes, you were a very vocal critic of the last administration, the George W. Bush administration. But, um, but just because President Obama or even his successor is not planning to go off into the world somewhere to start another war, another war does that mean that conflicts won't come to us or that unexpected military confrontations won't materialize despite our best intentions? And do you think that in light of the potential uh, conflict that the U.S. may have with China in the near future, that it is prudent for the president to cut the size of its armed forces to the way that he plans to do so? Well, it's, uh, you know, as Yogi Berra said, uh, you know, predictions are hard, especially if they're about the future. <laughs> uh, uh, we, we, are, we are developing, um, uh, we're actually taking our budget back to where it was in 2007, which was at the height of the, uh, the, of the uh, drama that we had going on in Iraq uh, at the time. So it's not a, it's not a drastic reduction. It's a, it's a reduction in, uh, indeed. Uh, and if sequestration is not solved, it's going to get worse. Right. Sequestration uh, but, obviously is the across the board defense cuts that, uh, the Congress correct. and the president agreed to, um, as part of a budget deal. Correct. And, but as long as our Air Force and Navy are sustained to, uh, to manage the, uh, the control of the commons, access to the air and sea commons, and as long as we have the structure in place to uh, uh, to maintain control of the space and cyber commons, uh, we'll be okay. The the big challenges coming out of China right now are in the world of cyber and in the world of uh, of space. Mm-hmm. So the, the I've got some concerns about uh, you know what we are doing with respect to cyber and space to make sure that we're okay there. What the Chinese are doing. In increasing their uh, their military is uh, is what I would call reasonable because their military when, when you when you look for balance diplomatic economic and military components of national power the the Chinese military was not up to snuff to their economic power which is huge and deploying and their diplomatic power which is uh, more modest uh, in the area. So as they as they increase the size of their armed forces and look to be the regional hegemon in the South China Sea area, uh, that gives rise to some uh, concern on the part of uh, you know the Vietnamese, the Koreans, the Malaysians, uh, uh, the Thais. It, it's it you will see. Uh, other states in the region uh, fall in line with Japan as uh, as a a loose collective and and maybe not so loose in the future uh, to challenge the rise of China. So China has to do this uh, pretty delicately, or it will wind up in a uh, in a regional challenge 
uh, with the rest of the countries in the uh, around the South China Sea. When former President Morsi came to our office in Egypt after the revolution that overthrew. Uh, Mubarak. The first foreign country he visited was China, not the United States. Obviously, President Morsi has now been deposed. But do you think that、uh, other leaders in the Middle East,、uh, just like Morsi, are eager to signal that they have alternatives besides the besides the United States, and that they can and will look to China for trade, partnership, and and other ties? Well, this this goes back to.、Uh, The rise of China and how the United States of America managed the,、uh, manages the rise.、Uh, the last time we had a, a change in,、uh, in, in global structure of, of, of significance was uh, the uh, uh, Great Britain and the United States. And after the Boer War,、uh, the Brits. Saw some、uh, some economic challenges, and you know, some people pen it as、uh, as the beginning of the decline of、uh, of Great Britain, and how the Brits, who were not necessarily our friends、uh, at the turn of the last century,、uh, how they managed the rise of America was、uh, was really well done.、Uh, they they chose to allow the the The, the growth of the American continent in the、uh, the United States uh, uh, to to grow and to actually complement、uh, the declining British power. Well, but it's a, it's quite a different story with the United States and China, right? And as far as the Middle East is concerned, do you think that some of the angst that we're seeing in the region has something to do with U.S. Le- leadership in the Middle East?、Uh, do you think our do you think U.S. allies in the region have some concerns over the、um, way that America withdrew from Iraq, the way that the Obama administration was unable to stem the Violence in Syria, and you know, and plus the chaotic situation in other countries after the Arab Spring.、Uh, do you think that the U.S.、Uh, th- that the U.S. commitment to the region is in doubt at the moment, as far as many well, of America's allies are concerned? No, the the see the Chinese are are, are very very happy to see America's uh, uh, military budget.、Uh, Tried to pacify the entire planet. They, the, the Chinese, have focused on their economic, on their, on their economic power, and、uh, they've done so really, really well. And they, they have filled economic vacuum, whereas America has retreated from、uh, economic power、uh, deployed in the region. We, we have, we have made too much use of our military and not enough use of,、uh, of our economic component of national power. Which has actually created problems for our own economy. So, you know, it, it, Europe and、uh, and China both allowed the United States to、uh, to spend quite a lot of money to to help police the、uh, the global commons, and、uh, they saved that money and dedicated it to their own economic rise. So.、Uh, What would you like to see the U.S. do、uh, in terms of、uh, of utilizing its economic power in the Middle East? How would you like to see the U.S. do that? Well, not so much.、Uh, well, not just in the Middle East, but、uh, we we certainly have、uh, terrific opportunities in the Middle East. 
but there's an there's an outfit that I discovered late in life that I'm I'm embarrassed to say uh, called OPIC, Overseas Private Insurance Corporation. It's a uh, uh, Department of Commerce managed uh, activity that is very close to my office in Washington D.C. and they deploy economic power. They they uh, insure the deployment of uh, of U.S. Uh, economic uh, de- development uh, worldwide, and this is a government it, office. It, yes, it is. Okay, and it, it is uh, it, it's government finance, but they actually return ten times the uh, the amount of money that uh, they are given by Treasury to. Uh, I'm sorry, I said Commerce earlier. It's, it's Treasury. They 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 give ten times what they receive back to uh, to the U.S. Treasury. So. They're doing on a small scale what China has been doing on a huge scale. And uh, I think that if we're Promote, to, in uh, terms of promoting trade and commerce for, for the home country. Correct. Okay. So the Chinese have, uh, have filled a vacuum and they're, they're doing it. I saw, I saw the, uh, I, I was at a conference in, uh, Uganda, uh, the year before last and, the number of Chinese businessmen that I saw in the airport and uh, in uh, in the town of uh, uh, that we were in in Kampala, uh, I, I was I was very impressed. I mean, they're they're they are go getters and they are they are uh, out to uh, to develop markets for Chinese industry and. Uh, I applaud them for it. What I would like to see the United States do is more emphasis in economic deployment and less emphasis on military deployment. Are we seeing more Chinese military engagement in the Middle East right now? And if so, do you happen to know what the nature and extent of such engagement is? Uh, The only engagement that I recall is not necessarily in the Middle East. And I, I, I frankly... Uh, haven't seen uh, Chinese uh, deployment in the Middle East, other than uh, maybe some security in support of what they're doing up in uh, in Iraq in oil field development. But I, I'm pretty sure the Chinese Navy was helpful in the uh, counter piracy uh, dilemma that we had off the coast of Somalia. Um, earlier this year, Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi indicated that Beijing seeks a greater role in the Middle East and that it wants to expand its involvement beyond just trade and energy to include political and security affairs. Beijing has also indicated that it would now like to get involved in diplomatic initiatives like the Israeli-Palestinian peace talks. Uh, should the United States welcome China's increased presence in the Middle East? In those areas, or should it be wary of it and see it as a, uh, as new competition for influence? Well, again, I don't see China as uh, as a future enemy. In fact, uh, I, I would say that uh, China is not an enemy that uh, we want to have in the future. And the uh, the world's a big place, and we're becoming less dependent on on the extractive economies of the middle east uh, uh oil because we're you know if we're not now we're very soon going to be a, a net exporter of uh of uh, fossil fuels so i don't have a problem with 
Chinese uh, working with the United States to uh, achieve greater stability. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a busy place in the Middle East. There's plenty of room for, uh, <laughs> for uh, folks to, uh, to help us out there. Right. Plenty of conflicts for folks to, folks to facilitate peace talks for. Okay, we have been speaking with retired Major General Paul Eaton, a senior advisor of the National Security Network in Washington, D.C. General, many thanks for chatting with us. Ying, my pleasure, and thank you so much for the invitation. This is China Takes Over the World, and I am Ying Ma.